Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, as we gather this morning, we count our blessings as we bask in your grace. And as we give uh, thanks for your blessings, we pray for the faith to trust in you fully. And we pray for the gift of generosity and love for our neighbor, especially our neighbor in need. Amen. Well, we've been journeying through the book of Matthew, and one of the reliable features of Matthew's parables, if, if you've been to a, a, a few of these worship services, is that uh, a familiar scene in life in the parables, working in a vineyard, getting invited to a party you don't want to attend. That's a familiar one, right? In each parable, uh, the familiar scene then points to something transcendent and eternally significant. The sheep aren't just sheep, they're familiar, but they stand for the favored ones of God. Okay. And then we get to this parable, which presents us with a decidedly different scene and approach. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In contrast to the other parables, this parable begins in the future with an otherworldly setting, doesn't it? Between this life and the next. It begins with the end. Then it points to the world that we live in now to the existence that we share with our neighbors, specifically our neighbors who are hungry, thirsty, lacking clothing, are sick or in prison. And the parable makes an unmistakable connection between those needy folk in our present world and Judgment Day. To be sorted as a sheep is to be given life. To be sorted as a goat is to be sentenced. Now, there are a couple of very big messages in this, probably a couple dozen. We'll just do two. First, this parable clearly says that how we relate to these sorts of people in our lives has eternal significance. This is, this parable is, a meditation on the character of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, again, in the book of Matthew especially, is a counterproposal to the kingdom of this world, where the poor, the sick, the prisoners truly, really get treated as the least of these. That's who they are. But in the kingdom of God, the least of these, they're not exactly the least, are they? How we treat them becomes the measuring stick of whether we are sheep or goats. Interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, this parable that Jesus told is right before the passion narrative. And so, right before Jesus himself would be hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, and sick, 
I think we can say worse than sick. So, this parable is given much deeper resonance, is it not, when we consider that Jesus not only identifies with such folk, Jesus became such folk. One wonders, who are these sort of people around us today in whom God is present and hiding? And how do we regard them? This is an especially challenging passage for many God-fearing Americans because of some of our assumptions as American Christians. For instance, the Protestant work ethic for all of the good things that it's brought to the table and the gospel of prosperity are both highly American ideas that assume economic prosperity for a person is tied to the quality of that person's commitment to Jesus. And so if one is a good Christian, one will be blessed economically. Wealth, then, is a validation of one's good relationship with God. It stands to reason by this way of thinking that for those who have little, well, do the math, their standing before God is maybe suspect. And so you will hear things like, well, you know, a lot of those people living in poverty, those in prison, they made choices, didn't they? They're morally compromised. They lack initiative. They really should accept Jesus into their hearts. They reap what they sow, right? Or, is the care of the sick really my business? Well, I don't have to tell you that one is a currently hotly debated topic. And strangers, how can we ever trust strangers, let alone welcome them, especially if they're immigrants? Again, ripped from the headlines, I get it. The truth is, we often like to play the judge who separates the sheep from the goats in our world. And when we do, guess who we assign the part of the goat? <laughs> the poor, the incarcerated, the strangers, the least of these. And along comes Matthew 25, <laughs> where Jesus says, the goats aren't who you think they are. Disown the least of these, and you disown me. I've pitched my tent with them. Now, the point here isn't that the least of these are saints. They're not, nor are any of us, by the way. The point is, we're all in it together. And Jesus refuses to leave some people out in the cold. I know that some who are listening may feel this is less relevant because our daily lives perhaps don't include many who are living in poverty or in prison or a stranger. But that's part of the point, isn't it? An insulated life is an unfaithful one. We are called to those people on the margins. But if we are not collectively as a people addressing and engaging those at the margins, are we heeding Jesus' words? Today? Big picture. According to Matthew, God is all about compassion. Compassion toward those who need it most. And God expects compassion for, from us as well, we who claim to follow Jesus. Again, this is who God is 
And that's good news. Isn't that what you want in a God? He's the kind of God who cares about the down and outers, the ones the world wants to forget. That is a God with heart. This is a God you can believe in, a God you can trust, a God who also holds us accountable. So, a major function of a parable like this is to help us uh, not to focus on Judgment Day, but on where Judgment Day points us, namely, back to right here, right now, and to those in need. They are not only the apple of God's eye, you see. God is one of them. What does that mean for Mount Carmel in 2019? How do we increase our commitment to and involvement with those whom God has chosen to identify with? Obviously, it involves building upon the good things that we are already doing here and have been uh, for a long time. And Karen mentioned a bunch of them, including Sheridan's story and the, and, and the bucket where, where uh, coins are, are gathered and, and, and Easter baskets, etc., etc. But second, let me turn to a question many of you are probably struggling with in this parable, especially if you grew up as a, as a Lutheran, and the phrase, we are justified by grace through faith, is still ringing in your ears from confirmation. <laughs> okay, it's great that God cares about the marginalized and expects us to do the same, but aren't we supposed to be saved by faith and not by works? If I'm going to avoid a team goat, and make it on to Team Sheep. I don't know if I've done enough to help these people. Mother Teresa did, for sure. Um, but I know that I probably don't do enough. Is my salvation in doubt because I, I don't do enough? Anyone here have that question when you encounter this text? Let's talk about this. Notice the word inherit in your text. Jesus says to the sheep, come forward and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Now, an inheritance, my friends, is a gift. It is not something we earned because we did the right thing. It is not a prize or a reward. It is a gift given to those with faith, those who understand it as pure gift. But what about the poor goats? Didn't they have any faith? Here's where the character of faith and works are disclosed to us brilliantly. Did you notice in this parable that when Jesus says to the sheep that they fed him when he was hungry, thirsty, etc., the sheep say what? When did we feed you, Lord? What are you talking about? And Jesus' response is, well, when you fed the least of these, you fed me. So, the sheep didn't even know they were doing this for Jesus. Well, why did they do these kinds of things? Maybe because their neighbor was in need? Because it came spontaneously from their hearts, not from their calculations about what they needed to do to be saved? 
The goats also were surprised to learn that the needy ones they had failed to love were in fact Christ. And of course, they certainly were thinking, well, if we'd known that, we certainly would have acted differently if we knew that was Christ in our neighbor. In other words, if we knew that this is what we were being graded on, (laughs) we would have been more loving to these people. Just like when we're students. We want to know what we're going to be graded on, so we make sure we put in the time and study. If we would have known what we were being tested on, we would have been more loving to these people. But then that's not love, is it? That's only loving yourself. Using the other person as a means to an end to get you through the pearly gates. True faith, I think it's being suggested here, frees us to love our neighbor because our neighbor needs love, not because you need points. You see, God freely gives you all you need. So faith is the gift of, a tr- of trusting. It's the gift of trusting that God loves you, sustains you, blesses you, and will give you a life that transcends death. To have such faith in a God that is generous Well, that kind of changes a person, doesn't it? When you think about it. To have such faith is to be grateful. And it is to become generous yourself. That's what faith does. It frees us and it sends us to love. It is, as Karen reminded us, the power cord that connects us to the power so that our light can turn on. So, in this parable, the sheep are judged by their faith, not their works. It just so happens that feeding the hungry is the fruit of their faith. It's what people of faith do. That's why they're sheep. You see here that faith is so much more than merely assent to propositions. Sure, I agree with, I agree that there's a God and that he sent his son Jesus. I agree to these things. I have faith. Not really what faith is. Faith is a relationship that engenders trust and generates gratitude, generosity, and love. Faith is a relationship that not only frees us to love our neighbor, it also frees us to find God in our neighbor because that's where God is. James said it well when he said, faith without works is dead. You know that little verse? The truth is, faith without works isn't even faith at all. It's something else. And if all this is slightly unsettling, maybe it's supposed to be. Sometimes the word of God nudges us out of our comfort zone, even as we cling to faith. Perhaps it drives us to faith even more. Perhaps it drives us to the foot of the cross, clinging to faith. I want to close on this note. When we speak of uh, faith practices around here, we are doing nothing less in those practices than tending and nurturing a relationship that's far more than a ticket to heaven. That is why it's important to talk about it, reflect on it, learn about it. Faith is who we are, creatures 
dependent on our Creator 24-7. And faith sends us out to love. Amen.